Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we continue our advocacy in the fight against human trafficking through the stories of two unlikely victims and get set to get close to the people, places, and culture inspiring an idea for a transformative, community-based adventure travel. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and along with my husband, Ian, we're sharing two powerful stories of survival of human trafficking and how the Peace Corps inspired a new idea in adventure travel that's changing the world through positive footprints. Thanks, dear. First up, Holly Smith breaks the mold of what many believe a human trafficking victim to look like. She's American, blonde, and grew up in a two-parent household in New Jersey. Yet as a young teenager, a con man lured her into the sex trade with promises of a career in Hollywood. Holly made her way out of that tragic situation, and today she lends her voice and her unique perspective to provide aid to victims and inform policymakers about the evils of sexual abuse and trafficking worldwide. Often in America, these kids and teens are being lured with false promises, or um, traffickers are targeting kids who have no other option, and so it doesn't look like, it doesn't necessarily look the same as it would overseas. Stacy Jewell Lewis has set her mark on the theater world with her dynamic plays geared to the fight against trafficking, thanks to encouragement from her parents and an assist from a family friend in the performing arts. Sadly, at 19, Stacy found herself in the dark world of domestic sex trafficking. She survived that ordeal and now uses her voice and the creative arts to raise awareness about this crime and put an end to modern-day slavery. Everything about me was a lie. I talked that way. You know, you're taught to say, oh, you're this age, and it's your fault, and it's your choice, and you wear these masks that are given to you um, from those who buy you and those who sell you. Um... The only thing that I realized was very honest was my writing. Finally, Peace Corps volunteer Jack Fischel used a stint in Panama to find inspiration for the next chapter in his life. Upon leaving the Peace Corps, Jack and two of his Peace Corps colleagues sought to foster volunteerism and seized upon an idea for using community-based adventure travel to revitalize forgotten communities. That idea became Kateka, and Jack shares how he and his cohorts hope their idea for adventure travel can leave a positive impact on communities around the world. Kateka is an online community-based adventure travel guide that leverages the Global Peace Corps Network to connect tourists with communities that want to benefit from tourism that don't have a good way to, to access those tourists. You have underdeveloped communities looking to access tourists who want a more authentic travel experience. This is a guide that connects them. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Holly Smith breaks the mold of what many believe a human trafficking victim would look like. She's American, blonde, and she grew up in a two-parent household in a middle-class neighborhood in New Jersey. Yet, as a young teenager, Holly was conned into the sex trade when a man she met and befriended at a shopping mall promised her a life in the Hollywood lights. 
Circumstances helped Holly find her way out of her tragic situation, and today she lends her powerful voice and her unique perspective to provide aid to victims and inform policymakers about the endemic cycle of sexual abuse and trafficking worldwide. She has shared her story on the Dr. Oz Show and in national publications, including Cosmopolitan, and she joins World Footprints today. Thanks for joining us, Holly. Thanks for having me, Tanya. So the issue of human trafficking uh, is gaining significant momentum, but even with the attention we've been paying it on this show, um, the celebrities and mainstream media, people are still very surprised at how prevalent this crime is in the United States. Why do you think that is? Well, when we first hear the words human trafficking, including myself, when I first heard those words, I envision someone overseas, someone bound, someone being forced into uh, labor or sex trade. And um, a lot of the images that are being used in today's advocacy world against human trafficking in the United States, they use a lot of these images, or they often use these images still, Mm. um, bound hands, chains. And um, the problem is often in America... The, these kids and teens are being lured with false promises, or um, traffickers are targeting kids who have no other option. And so it doesn't look like, it doesn't necessarily look the same as it would overseas. And so a lot of people are, are just calling these kids over here, oh, they're just teen prostitutes. That's been going on. Where are the human trafficking victims? And those are the human trafficking victims in America. Mm-hmm. And there's there's also forced trafficking happening in America, forced and abduction. But the, I think the more common story is these kids are being lured away. And, and like I said, they have no other options. I know you're writing a, a book right now about your experience, and I want to ask you to briefly describe how you ended up really being lured by this stranger and, um, and to ask you if, you if you wouldn't mind to read a passage from your book, which is not published yet, but we're looking forward to it. Um, this is the very beginning, so this is how, it'll, how my story will begin. I was looking for something. It was the summer after my eighth grade middle school graduation, and I had been looking for something ever since that school year had begun. I stared into the faces of strangers as they passed by me in large crowds, a habit I had picked up that year. I was looking for someone to acknowledge me in some way. I thought if someone noticed me, if somebody, anybody, didn't look away when I bumped into his view, then I would know that I was really there, that I was alive and solid and visible. And then one day, somebody did. I was straggling behind my friends in the mall, searching from face to face. By then, I was used to the consistent disconnection from strangers, but then I noticed the guy staring at me. I held his stare, waiting for him to turn away, and then he raised his finger and curled it back, motioning for me to come over to him. The gesture jolted me from my trance. I blinked, turned around to look behind me, thinking for sure he must be talking to someone else, but nobody was there. I looked back at him, and he curled his finger again, motioning for me to come over. I shook my head no. He dropped his fist and continued to watch me. I looked around to see if anyone noticed this exchange between us. My best friend and her boyfriend had stopped at the piercing pagoda. My other friends loitered around them, and everyone else in the world continued to look over me, past me, or through me. Only this guy noticed my existence. It was a moment for which I had been waiting. A stranger who was out there in the real world spotted me and invited me in. 
I was unsure of what to do, hesitant, yet I was equally afraid I might miss this chance opportunity. An opportunity for what? I didn't know, but I wanted to find out. Mm. And that's sort of how I met him at the mall. When I listen to your story, when I hear you, you know, I think about my own teenage sisters and the time when I was a teenager and, you know, the, the problems I had with, uh, with, with my parents, which were normal, you know, dynamics between teenagers and, and parents. Um, is, was that basically what was happening in, in your home life that, you know, just that, that normal dynamic or, or was there something more that, that caused you to really seek out attention from other people? I think that there was more going on, and I think that traffickers, especially pimps, are skilled at spotting which teen is in the most distress, which teen is, is going to be most easily lured away from home with promises. If you looked at my group of friends, you could tell that I was the one who had the lowest self-esteem because I was straggling behind the crowd. I was sort of looking into the crowd while my friends were talking and playing around. I was very detached. I was really depressed. And this is what pimps look for. They look for girls who are struggling. And boys, too. Holly, as I listen to your story, and one of the things that strikes me is that at that point in your life, you were in need of help. But you also found yourself getting caught up in the criminal justice system because of the activities you were involved with. That had to feel like just just another level level of abuse and even exploitation at that point, even though you were really a person crying out for help. Yeah, exactly. I saw it as another, just another failure. Like, I I had been failed by the system several times, as are many, and many kids who fall victim to traffickers and pimps. Um, I was arrested 36 hours later after I had run away and was forced into prostitution. I was recognized by an officer to be underage, but I was arrested and I was sent home with no services at all. So this is why I advocate today for immediate services. There needs to be some transition between the street and home or whatever the kid was before so that they can understand not only what happened to them, but so that somebody can figure out the best place for them to go. As we look at today compared to your situation, have you seen any changes with respect to how young people who find themselves in these awful situations are handled within the system, be it the criminal justice system, the social services system, the extended system of, of nonprofit organizations and counseling organizations that are focused on uh, dealing with uh, youth who are at risk and trouble and being exploited. I think that awareness for this issue is definitely gaining more attention in America. There is a federal law that mandates children under the age of 18, so any minor, um, is a victim of human trafficking, according to, to federal statutes, um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000. But it really falls under state laws um, and state protocol if, if the child is found, um, I guess, by state officials as opposed to federal officials. So then it would fall under the state law and, and however their protocol is set up to handle the kids. So... It depends on the state, how well the process is going. And mm-hmm. I think each state, I think every state is working to better the process. There are a lot of 
organizations out there across the country who are pushing for better laws in each state. Well, you know, speaking speaking of laws, I know the House and I believe the President Obama signed the Violence Against Women Act, which also reauthorizes the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, I believe we were just alluding to. Do you think that does enough right now, just the, the federal attention that's being paid to this crime? I think it's very important how much attention it's, it's gaining on the federal level. President Obama has been um, really campaigning for passage of the TVPA and the AWA. So um, that's, that's, like I said, it's, it's very important, it's significant, but it still needs to happen on the state level. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I think the president is is exemplifying that. Now, Holly, you write a column for the Washington Times, and you interview a number of human trafficking survivors. And being a survivor yourself, there may not be that much that surprises you, but is there a story that really did has taken you by surprise? Is there something new that that you learned that you didn't know before? Well. Um well, first of all, I didn't even know that this happened to other people until 2009. Um, I actually watched a documentary uh, about human trafficking in India, I think, and that's when I, so I got online. I was like, oh, that sounds a lot like what happened to me a long time ago. And I searched human trafficking in America, and I found Children of the Night in California, mm-hmm. and they provide services to, um, to teen victims. And um, I was amazed that this happened to other people and that it was still happening. So um, through this process of writing and meeting other survivors, I'm meeting so many girls who, or so many women whose stories are so similar to mine. Like coming from a troubled home, being lured away with some sort of false promise, and and being exploited. Um, But I'm also meeting survivors of labor trafficking. Uh, I've met a couple survivors who are um, more foreign victims brought into the United States for sex trafficking and for labor trafficking. And I've met a few women who were victimized as children by their family. Um, They were forced into the sex trade. And um, and it it was very... It was very hard to hear those stories because although they may not be as common as children being lured into the industry, um, it's very heartbreaking to know that, that, it, that it really is happening. Now, Holly, as, as we've listened to your story, there are situations in the lives of the young people who've been exploited that have led them out of the home that have led them to the streets. What suggestions would you offer to parents who are faced with children who, who who might be looking to run away or children that they know have actually fallen prey to the streets? What is it that parents can even do, even at you know some of the uh, late stages of this, uh, uh, to kind of turn the situation around to help bring a child out of that exploitive environment? If you go on my website and you sign up for the, the monthly newsletter, I have 10 tips written out from myself to parents, prevention tips against trafficking. Uh, But I also have written articles for elementary school teachers and middle school teachers, and and it's it's all kind of the same. It boils down to 
is getting your kids involved with extracurricular activities. That's one thing. I think that children who are bored are going to be more easily um, lured away with ideas of, of having fun and exciting adventures in, in some other way. Um, also, kids who are showing signs of depression or, um, or if they're acting out in anger, if it's going beyond like a typical teenage angst where it's really disruptive to their home life or their school life, I think that it's really important to get them uh, help, to, to take them to counseling. Because if you don't connect them with the help they're seeking, somebody else is going to exploit that that vulnerability, which is what happened with me. I, I'm just curious, Holly, when you returned home, what happened in your house to help break that cycle? Oh, it took a very long time. It really, really did. I There were several teachers that helped keep me on somewhat of a straight path through um, high school and through college. I mean, I really struggled in college as well, but I was always... Um, I always loved school, so that helped to keep me focused, but I, I struggled with um, domestic violence. I struggled with um, uh, drugs and alcohol and all through my 20s, and it really wasn't until I met another survivor in 2009 that um, I was able to piece together all those, all those pieces from my past and really make sense of what happened. And this is why I advocate for not only for immediate aftercare for, for teen victims, um, but also to connect these kids with survivors who are in good places today mm-hmm. so that they can understand that this experience, that not only that it wasn't their fault and that they were manipulated and exploited, but that it doesn't define them and they can become empowered and, and do whatever they want to do. Are there any organizations out there who are at the forefront of raising awareness and, and influencing public policy towards human trafficking and even developing some of the social programs that, that you've mentioned? Sure. Well, there's, there's several organizations out there that are all working hard in different areas of um, anti-human trafficking advocacy. So, some organizations like um, Courtney's House in Washington, D.C., or mm-hmm. Children of the Night in California, they work directly with teen victims, and um, they are working to empower these kids and change their lives, whereas organizations like Shared Hope International or Polaris Project, they're on the front line for policy change. So they're going around to different states and, and pushing for changes in state laws. Holly Smith, we will have actually a link to your website on uh, our website and uh, in the show page so that people can take advantage of the the knowledge and uh, advice that you have to share. It's very, very important. And thank you very much for joining us today on World Footprints to help us continue to raise awareness about the silent crime called human trafficking. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. After the break, another survivor of human trafficking shares her painful and harrowing story and how adapting it for the stage has led to healing and hope as she shares her survival story with a growing and receptive theater 
reporter audience. Everything about me was a lie. I talked that way. You know, you're taught to say, oh, you're this age, and it's your fault, and it's your choice, and you wear these masks that are given to you um, from those who buy you and those who sell you. Um, the only thing that I realized was very honest was my writing. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I really enjoy listening to the World Footprint radio show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania. And three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims. But by joining forces, we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGIFT.org Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans and I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Stacy Jewell Lewis, the CEO of Jewel Productions and Who is Stolen Creative Arts Troupe, has set her mark on the theater world with her dynamic plays geared towards a fight against human trafficking. Encouraged in the arts by her parents and receiving guidance from longtime family friend and actress Sylvia Bronson, Stacy began pursuing theater at an early age. However, at the age of 19, Stacy was taken into the dark world of domestic sex trafficking. She survived that ordeal and now uses her voice in the creative arts to raise awareness about this crime and to put an end to modern-day slavery. Stacy, thank you for joining World Footprints today. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you I'm glad know, to be here. <laughs> uh, we're glad to have you. And, you know, you're another story that really breaks the mold of what people may perceive a human trafficking victim to look like. When you were taken, you were actually, you were a young adult, but not a child. Briefly tell us how this happened to you. I was 19 years old, so I was a young adult, and I actually had a child at this time, so I was also a young mother. And um, I was actually abducted uh, not too far from the neighborhood that I was living. Um, and, you know, I do remember as a child that, you know, they used to sometimes teach in school, you know, not taking candy from a stranger or not getting in the car with a stranger or be careful when you're walking alone, you know, not to take the same route. And But by the age of 19, a lot of those things that I had been taught as a child really weren't uh, holding its same weight. You know, you get to that age and you think, oh, I'm secure, I can do these things. And I began to take the same route home um, just about every night, same bus, same location, um, same time of night. And uh, the traffickers I didn't know at that time would scout out young women and they would watch their patterns. They would look to see what directions they were taking home if they walked alone quite frequently, uh, what buses 
that they would take. And uh, I actually missed the bus um, one evening. It was probably around 9.30 uh, p.m. And I was uh, approached by an elderly gentleman. He was actually 71 years old at the time. And he pulled over in his car and asked me, you know, would I like a ride to the station? He made comments like, you know, it's awfully dangerous out here. It's late in the evening. Um, you're walking by yourself. You know, would it be okay if I just gave you a ride, you know, just so you could be safe? All of these kind of trigger words that made me look more at my environment than at him, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked at him and I thought, well, he's elderly. He looks kind of like a grandpa figure, you know. I think he's old enough if he tries to do anything to harm me that I could defend myself. So I actually did take the ride. Um, and what ended up happening was that he was actually paid by a trafficker to pick up young girls because they feel safe getting in the car with him and he would deliver them to the trafficker, which he did with me. One of the misperceptions that I, I know you're fighting is that human trafficking victims can choose to run, but in your that wasn't the case, certainly with you after this elderly man delivered you to the trafficker. Tell us a little bit about what happened next. Um, I was given the option to run, but they were with particular consequences. So often girls, they do seem like they have the chance to run, but they're usually faced with a decision when it comes to running, because I did have a choice to jump out of the car. So my first thought was, if I tried to jump out the car in a moving vehicle, you know, what's the damage going to be to me? I'm not exactly sure where he's taking me. Maybe it won't be so dangerous. Um, When I decided not to jump out of the car, you know, the trafficker was there waiting for me with an enforcer and a weapon, um, which was a gun at the time. Um, And he said, you can choose to run, you can choose to scream, but then you may have to face my weapon or you may have to face being physically harmed. Um, And, you know, at that time, you choose to either go with them or you choose to um, listen to the instructions based on the warning uh, that comes from them. So, you know, they keep telling you you have a choice Mm -hmm. so that when the time comes, you believe that actually these were your decisions when they weren't. You know, who makes the choice to either face violence or escape? You know, often you're going to try to protect yourself to survive. And they know that it's a part of the manipulation, a part of the brainwashing that they regularly do. They also threatened your son, too. During this process, they said, we know where you live. We know that you have a son. Um, They named my street. Um, And they said that if you do decide to run and go to the police, we will send someone to your house and we will harm your child. And I think that was the main thing that kept me from, from leaving at that time. How were you ultimately able to break away from this situation to break out of this? The trafficker that I had at that time was arrested. Um, Once you remove the male trafficker often out of those situations, it is a lot easier to escape to kind of get away from the manipulation if at that time you have not gotten so used to living under this captivity that you don't stay. Many girls end up staying and usually just get a new trafficker um, into the situation. So it's, it's very difficult usually to escape because of the time that it's taken for them to manipulate you to for you to believe that this is a lifestyle that you should be living. But um, my trafficker, my second trafficker, because I actually had multiple traffickers, was arrested and that is ultimately how I was able to escape the lifestyle. You had a child, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. someone had to watch out for the child. Were you still engaged in this activity as well? Um, that's 
actually a very interesting uh, part of my story. Um, the reason I would actually take this particular route to drop my child off was because me and uh, my child's father had a, a, a great relationship. Both loved our child dearly, and we had an arrangement where I would watch him during the day and he would watch him in the evening. Um, and so this is kind of how we shared our custody. So he did um, actually have his father in his life during that time when I was abducted. Um, when I was taken for the week, there was a panic. There was, you know, a lot of alarm. The trafficker was very specific for me to actually call a, a family friend, someone who could tell other people that I was okay. Um, now, this was very strategically done how they did this. It was uh, they are standing there with you while you make the phone call. They usually have a weapon on you. I had a weapon on me. Make this call. Tell them that you're okay, that you'll be back, and that you're just kind of doing your own thing. And these were very specific words that they asked me to use. I didn't understand that at the time, but they explained, okay, we don't want someone to call, put a police report on you. Um, police will start coming, and then we'll have to hurt you if police get involved. But what they were really doing was making your family believe that this was something you were choosing to do. You were choosing to leave, so they never would report you. But they would also be very angry and upset with you, thinking that this was something that you chose in your rebellion to just abandon not just your child, but your family in a whole. Very, very strategic move on their end, and they learned that because they usually work through a criminal enterprise and a criminal system. Stacy, what was the timeline? What you know? How long ago did this happen to you? And what was the uh, the length of time that you were in a traffic situation? Well, this actually happened uh, right around between 1999 and 2001. I was in the situation for um, just about two years. Oh my goodness! Um, so this, uh, I was actually tw- uh, about to turn 21 when I escaped the life. So when you escaped, were there any services provided to you to help you reclaim your life? There were no services. (laughs) There were no services. And it's funny because we're fighting for services right now in 2013, 2012, 2011, fighting for victims, including children, to receive these type of services. So you can only imagine uh, 12 to 13 years ago uh, that there were were no services even heard of at that time for someone like myself. Uh, we're still trying to convince law enforcement and uh, child protective services and other locations to believe that these young women are actually victims. So at that time, they certainly did not believe that I was a victim. I was uh, just kind of bunched together in that young adult prostitution uh, language. This was my choice. I chose to do this. So there was nothing provided for me. One of the things that I sense from just speaking with you is that you're an intelligent woman. You're articulate and even as a young person, you had a very strong survival instinct. But the thing that saddens me is that it seems as if all of these things worked against you in getting, whether it was law enforcement or people, to take your plight seriously at that point. It, it, just, it just saddens me that uh, the very things that have made you who you are were used against you. Yes. And, you know, 
traffickers uh, then and now are very strategic on how they choose their victims, depending on the type of trafficker that they are. You know, I, I always put them in different type of categories. Um, you have those who, uh, and these are just my categories, so I do apologize about the terms, but I consider some of them to have a dog trainer mentality versus a slave master mentality. Mm-hmm. And it's not that, you know, these victims are uh, dogs or anything like that, but it's just the mentality of, okay, this is how I train my victim. This is what I do. I give them a good job. If they do what I tell them to do, I punish them. If they don't do what I tell them to do, and eventually this victim is so used to either receiving some sort of reward or some sort of punishment that they just begin to act out and they become their own trained uh, kind of uh, operating uh, system as, as far as prostitution is concerned. So they are going to be viewed as someone who does this on their own and they are strong enough to keep this persona. Those kind of traffickers uh, operate very much in a business mindset. They want to make sure that they aren't um, ever implicated in the crime itself, so they teach the girls and they victimize the girls this way. Then you have other traffickers who I consider very much like slave masters where uh, they are usually keep their girls locked in a room, drugged, and they're just kind of forced to do these things for the highest bidder, and they, they're never, ever seen. If there isn't a large investigation or, or they're not really noticed, they would never even know. A lot of these girls become, uh, you know, die very quickly within the next, you know, a few years because no one ever even notices them whatsoever. Mm. So, you know, traffickers are very strategic if they choose the 16 to 19 to 20 year olds so that they are not looked at as children by police, so that they're always looked at as very bold and or vibrant or courageous. When I think about vice squads and I think about police, I I think about men, and I'm wondering if having women investigators and having women at the front lines of this fight in some of the police departments would make a difference or would have made a difference in your case. You know, it actually wouldn't make a difference if these women aren't properly trained on mm-hmm. what they're looking for. And that's a part of our fight when it comes to public awareness. You need to know what these victims look like because an average person will never, ever consider them to be a victim. They don't look like victims. They don't look like five, six, and seven-year-old children who are put in situations like that where you will, will be geared towards feeling sorry for them. As a general population, we have a particular stigma that comes on a, a woman or, or a woman of the night, a prostitute. Once you view them, you do not have the inclination to have sympathy, empathy, or understanding of their plight or, or even to view them as a victim. So it could be a woman in vice or it could be a man in vice if they do not have the training to even be able to see past the persona that's given to the general world, mm-hmm. then they're not going to actually be able to service them or help them at all. I want to fast forward to present day mm-hmm. and what you're doing now. I love the fact that you 
using your passion in theater, using the arts to not only raise awareness, but to change the understanding, uh, the mm-hmm. misconceptions mm-hmm. about what human trafficking is, um, and, and educating uh, the, the public. Where did you get the strength, really, to tap into your passion in the arts to use that in the fight against human trafficking? And how has that been perceived by your audiences? Well, you know, I was off saying that, you know, I had this passion since I was a child, and the one thing that was kept from me, uh, you know how some people say, oh, you knew, you know, you're reliving your childhood when you've gone through some sort of trauma, depending on the trauma, but in that captive situation, you know, as a victim, and, and a lot of these victims, you're not having any parts of the arts, and that's a part of, of, of life, you know, you're not going to the movies, in this captivity. You're not going to plays. You're not doing anything with theater. You are deprived from these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's nothing like being deprived from those things and then becoming free. I immediately uh, wanted to just go to the movies. You know, when I came out of the life, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can go to the movies. And I began to write because I was so taught to live a lie. Everything about me was a lie. I talked that way. You know, you're taught to say, oh, you're this age, and it's your fault, and it's your choice, and you wear these masks that are given to you um, from those who buy you and those who sell you. Um, The only thing that I realized was very honest was my writing. Mm -hmm. And I was so ashamed about the things that I dealt with that I began to write more creatively because I didn't want to be completely honest about how I felt. I didn't want to have a diary, you know, of what I experienced. So I would put it in poetry form so that I could honestly be very cryptic about what I had been through. And it was easier for me to read those words again to kind of try to heal myself is because it wasn't as graphic as what I experienced. The more I began to write, eventually I began to share a poem here and there. And when I would share a poem, I would find that the person who I shared it with, whether it was just a random stranger on the street or someone I was talking to, they would be so moved by it. And they would sometimes then begin to disclose some of the things that they had also been through. So I realized at that time, very early on, that the things that I wrote actually freed other people to be honest about the things that they experienced for a very long time. I I often would not deal with the trafficking part of uh, my life. I would write about the the, the residual effects, the, the captivity I would feel, my emotional distress, and I began to write plays. Uh, that geared towards that. But the more I began to be open about my story, I realized that the same effect that I had in people when I wrote plays for church or if I wrote plays for a school or I began to work with community centers on, on theater, that it's the same way I can affect the community for what I had suffered. Um, and my audience, they have so embraced uh, the expressions of my creativity because it frees them. The arts can free your mind, and it also can not just free your mind, it relaxes you enough to receive it. You're not as intense. You're actually going to a performance. I'm able to put comic relief in there during times where you may just want to eventually run away because it's so honest and, and so brutally truthful, but you're also being entertained. 
And one thing I understood about entertainment is that entertainment is the largest form of influence in our in the world. You know, you can believe a thing from something that you saw in a movie or you can understand something deeper from a song that you heard or from a creative art piece than you can reading all of the history books and educational books out there. You internalize the art because it's a part of life. That's why I often say that key quote, art is life, because it is. It's a part of us. It's something we embrace. It's creative but it can also be very truth-telling. And so far, my audience has been very receptive because I'm able to show them things in a way that they're able to receive it and also enjoy receiving it so that they can retain it. One of the ways you've been influencing and impacting your audiences is with your recent production, Seven Layers Captive. Talk to Mm -hmm. us about that. Um, You know, Seven Layers Captive is... It is something so dear to my heart because I wrote an additional play before that had survivors and advocates a part of the performance troupe, but this one is my personal testimony and my personal story of how not only did I enter into life, but also how I escaped. And I use music to kind of tell the mood of each emotion. I use spoken word to uh, talk about some of the difficult transitions as well as I begin to act out my uh, particular involvement in the storyline. So it's kind of a roller coaster ride of emotions and entertainment, but it, uh, I use all of these different creative realms to kind of hit your senses in different areas so that you can receive it because it's very heavy. It's very heavy. So it's so heavy often. If I didn't have comedy in there, then you would probably, you know, kind of blank out after a while because you're so focused on maybe a statement that I just made. I also use a lot of audience participation. And then when you're in there, I actually interact with you. So I involve the audience. And I, and I know my audiences are often so shocked when I start off saying this is audience participation. So <laughs> they're kind of going, okay, how do we participate in this? But I, I help them participate during musical segments. Mm-hmm. I have them participate when certain times I would ask the, quest, the audience a question and to get them to kind of come out of their shell so they're not kind of in this shocked mode they're actually answering some of the questions that they may have had about this topic for a long time and not have been able to answer you know so they become very involved and once they once they leave they realize that they have just been educated on something Mm -hmm. uh, in such a way that they are willing to bring other people back. And I got that comment a lot. I can't wait to bring more people back because you're educating me and involving me in a way where I don't feel uncomfortable, but it's a way I can also translate to someone else. And that's what Seven Layers Captive really deals with, but it also deals with the psychological, emotional, and physical captivity that happens to these girls so that you can better understand what you're looking at when you see a victim or a survivor. You can better understand why they didn't make certain choices or it answers those questions. Why didn't she run? You know, it it, it answers it in a way that it doesn't, it's not going to give you an all-around answer for everyone across the world, but it gives you a specific answer of why I didn't run that can be transparent enough for you to say, you know what, I can see that being the same reason why many victims don't run. Well, Stacey, this has been an incredibly powerful interview. Very, very powerful. And we thank you so much for joining us. We will have a link to your website, 
okay, which I believe ahead. is stacyjewellewis.com uh, mm-hmm. on, uh, on our website as well. And um, we really appreciate the time. We appreciate what you're doing, again, using the arts to communicate this issue. And so we thank you very much for your courage and your commitment to fighting human trafficking. Stacy Jewel Lewis, the founder, uh, CEO of Jewel Productions and Who is Stolen Creative Arts Troupe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so, so much. And it truly was a pleasure. When we return, we'll tell you how a stint in the Peace Corps inspired the idea of using community-based adventure travel to develop tourism in some forgotten places around the world. Katega is an online community-based adventure travel guide that leverages the Global Peace Corps network to connect tourists with communities that want to benefit from tourism that don't have a good way to, to access those tourists. You have underdeveloped communities looking to access tourists who want a more authentic travel experience. This is a guide that connects them. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Patricia Elsie from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian, <laughs> and they love our cooking, and they really enjoy the food. And I love them, and I hope they come back again. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Jack Fischel was a Peace Corps volunteer in western Panama, developing sustainable tourism in his indigenous community and teaching basic business skills throughout the country. Upon leaving the Peace Corps, Jack and two of his Peace Corps colleagues sought to foster volunteerism and share their former Peace Corps community and other communities where the Peace Corps has a presence with travelers. Jack and his colleagues created Kateka, a new community-based adventure travel organization. Jack, welcome to World Footprints. Thanks so much. What is Kateka, and give us some insight as to what inspired this idea. Kateka is an online community-based adventure travel guide that leverages the Global Peace Corps network to connect tourists with communities that want to benefit from tourism that don't have a good way to, to access those tourists. You have underdeveloped communities looking to access tourists who want a more authentic travel experience. This is a guide that connects them. This is about community-based adventure travel. How did you discover this niche, or what led you to that? So there are three of us involved, like you mentioned, and we are all working in separate sites on sustainable travel before we came up with this idea. But as we were working on that process, we could see that there were these communities who had reached out to us and said, we want to benefit from tourism. And on the other side, there were tourists, once we got going with these communities, that would come to the communities, they would do whatever it is that we were offering for them as, as tourist options. And then typically we'd hear stuff like, this was the best part of my vacation, this was so interesting, this was amazing, I wish I could do more travel stuff like this. And so the more we heard that and the more we realized that there's got to be more communities that want to benefit from these tourists and there's got to be more tourists that want to see these kind of communities. 
So it was through our experiences working with the communities and seeing these tourists that the three of us kind of put this idea together and decided to, to go global with it. How does this actually work? I mean, give me an, uh, an idea of how the, the mechanics work. You're not a travel agency, you're, so you're not booking travel, correct? Correct. Okay, so you're just you're basically just a resource for for people. And so, do you have, um, for example, a somebody in a, a community, a point person that travelers can reach out to? On every page that we have, every destination page for a community, at the bottom there should be a section called community contacts, and that's going to connect you with the people that can help you do the different activities that we recommend. So, for example, if there's if we say, hey, there's a great place to horseback ride in this community, there should be a contact that says, contact this guy about getting his horses or contact this family about a homestay or about staying at this hostel. And typically, we make the first connection either by going there and meeting the people or by getting in contact with the volunteer, the Peace Corps volunteer that lived or lived there, and then they can connect us to the community members. Now, there's a story behind the name of your company, Tateka. Tell us about that. So I live with the Nove, which are an indigenous group in western Panama. And Kateka is an indigenous word there, and it means to get close to. Two of us actually lived with the same indigenous group, and we were trying to think about a good one word that would summarize what we were doing and be kind of capture the authenticity and the essence of what we're trying to do. And we thought that to bring you closer to the country is really our goal, ultimately. And so we like that Kateka summarizes all that by being an indigenous word and by saying to get close to. You focus primarily at the outset in developing Kateka on Panama, which is where you had your Peace Corps experience. Give us a sense of what you saw in Panama and the kind of feedback you were getting during that Peace Corps experience that said, after I finish up my Peace Corps experience, I've got to really find something else to do to kind of continue with the work that I've started. I guess for a while I've always struggled between, you know, I studied business and I've always wanted to kind of work in business, but I've also struggled with wanting to do service and typically it's hard to sort of do both at the same time. Um, And so once we realized that there was this opportunity for community-based adventure travel, maybe making a guide, we thought that there was a business opportunity out there. It was was a great way to combine passions, combine social passion with, with a desire to do business. So it's social entrepreneurship, that's something that I love about it, and it's a great extension of what I was doing in the Peace Corps because the most rewarding part of the, my Peace Corps service was creating that tourism group and seeing them get the capacity to receive tourists and do all the work themselves, you know, eventually after without any of my help. And so I'd like to see that happen in other parts of the world, and I'd like to be part of that process as much as I can going forward. Talk a little bit about some of the, the, the work that you did to help build tourism in the community where you served as a Peace Corps volunteer and, and how that has developed over the years. So it started with really quickly just with a group of people that wanted to, they knew they wanted tourists, they just kind of abstractly, you know, I think they had this idea of there are these tourists coming through the country pretty close to where we live, and we'd like them to see our culture because they're not, most of the world is not very in touch with the Nobes, don't know who they are, and they also wanted to see the, of course, the economic benefit of the tourists coming in and um, buying stuff from the stores, buying tour packages or whatever it is that they were going to offer, so we had to sit down and first talk about what benefits the community could offer these tourists you know what were the natural advantages what were the eco advantages the cultural advantages that we wanted to leverage and that we wanted to showcase for the tourists so we had to talk about that develop a product 
show them how to deliver the product to Taurus. And it was actually my um, my family visited me in Panama, and they were our first test group. <laughs> and so they took the first tour that we put together, and we could get a lot of good, honest feedback out of them. And it just kind of went from there. Um, and so I was teaching them to connect. After that, it was about connecting with potential tourists, so putting flyers in hostels, doing some basic uh, phone outreach, some basic online outreach, you know, going into the, the, the nearest city with the people from the tourist group and saying, okay, you need to go to the hostel every few months and t- make sure that the flyer is still there, talk to them, encourage them to encourage people to come to the site, etc. So it was, it was a long process. It was about a year and a half of my two-year service just working on that um, before I really felt comfortable with, with them doing it with no help. And at this point, I'm still in contact a little bit, and they're still working on that. They're still getting tourist groups pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. So it ended up being a success. As tourism grows in that community, you know, one of the challenges that indigenous communities always face is maintaining the uh, sustainability of, you know, of, of their community, preventing, you know, too much commercial growth or keeping it authentic and, and not necessarily manufacturing or staging communities for the benefit of, of tourists. You said you're still involved, but before you left, and have you had those conversations to, with the, um, the people that you've been in touch with on the ground about maintaining the sustainability of their community? Yes. First of all, the community that I was in, they live on a protected area that where uh, outsiders, foreigners can't purchase any land. So that's a big advantage for them. Even if they wanted to you know, make a bad decision, they can't. So that, that protects them. But also, I think more significantly than that, they were the ones to say to me, we don't want to become one of those saturated destinations. You know, we don't want to lose our culture. We don't want to just have people from outside of the community, from even from outside of the country, being the primary landowners and just end up working for them. You know, having kind of like just relying on like a trickle down, which is what you see a lot of times in these, these big developed tourist areas. You know, there, there's definitely going to be a chance that people use our website and then someplace gets more popular. And it, it's certainly possible that it would get so popular that it could get saturated. But we think that the people that are going to end up using Kateka, in a lot of ways, it's going to be very self-selecting. You know, it's going to be people that are already interested in responsible travel and protecting the culture and protecting the environment where they're going. So we think that basically all the people that are going to use the website are going to be interested in that kind of preservation anyway. So we're not too concerned about the customer base that we're reaching out to. At the same time, again, we're going through the Peace Corps network. So if we hear anything about or see anything about a community that's maybe blowing up too fast, getting a little out of hand, we can always leverage that network to go in and get people to talk with them and see where they want to draw the line. You know, if they want to get a big hotel in there, if they if they want to stop that kind of thing from happening, how they can scale down the efforts. But again, that, that usually takes a lot of different factors to happen. We're just a travel guide pointing people to these sites. So we don't we don't see this being the cause of the problem, although it could contribute. And we want to make sure that there's always an effort to contribute to the other side of that, which is maintaining the authenticity. Some of these communities are probably uh, looking at uh, tourism perhaps for the first time in a in a strategic way and as a as as a big part of what their futures might uh hold how how have 
you found the experience, in, in, I guess, in terms of perhaps being part of a, a sea change in a mindset in some of the communities and towns that you feature on, Kateka, in pushing them towards this new model of sustainable tourism? In my personal experience, they were asking me to help them with tourism, you know? So it was definitely, among the people that asked, it was definitely very receptive. But we were also, um, we made sure to always have a couple people from the group going out to all the towns around our town that that were affected and going to meetings and making sure, you know, town hall meetings and stuff like that, and making sure that nobody was getting offended by these efforts, that no one felt invaded by the efforts. And there were always a few people, you know, a handful of people that didn't like it, um, honestly, what I typically found is that they were a little jealous, just that they weren't personally benefiting from it. But the overwhelming majority of the people liked it, in my, in my personal experience. They were very receptive to it. They liked that there were people coming in and, and seeing the community. And, again, that's something that we could take a really like about tourism is that it's not just you come in and do the tourist package or whatever and get out. You come in, and if it's, if it's community-based, you're eating at this little restaurant, you're buying food from the store, you know, you're buying a drink for yourself, um, you're, you're spreading out the impact. And so it, re- it really spreads the impact in the community. And so in that way, people are happy about it. It's not just one consolidated group that's getting all the benefit while everybody else watches. Your background is very interesting. You're the son of a diplomat, and so you've had plenty of travel opportunities. And so what you're doing is really in your, it's been in your blood <laughs> from, <Yeah. laughs> from infancy. Um, talk about some of the places that you traveled as, uh, as a child and, and if there's any country that actually, uh, or any experience that you had that actually pushed you towards service in the Peace Corps. A lot of my travel has been before before this whole Peace Corps experience. It's actually been in Asia because um, my dad speaks Chinese. He's been based loosely out of the East Asia region for from he was based out of that region for most of my growing up. So I've done a lot of travel in East Asia, Southeast Asia, um, coming out of China, out of that area. But I'd say that actually the experience that pushed me towards thinking about Peace Corps was in high school. I was in high school in Japan, living in Tokyo, and I was part of Habitat for Humanity, and we took service trips every year, and there were two years. Um, the first year I went to Thailand, a small community in Thailand, and helped build a house, and then the second year I helped. I actually led the trip to Fiji. The idea of going there and building the house, there was something very tangible about that impact. You know, you begin the day, and you know you're going to build a wall, and there's just, you know, there's just the foundation of a house, and then by the end of the day, there's a wall there. And that made a big impact on me, because I had always liked the idea of, of helping others, of donating to charity and stuff, but there's there's not as much of that, that tangible reward, you know, if, say, you give to some Salvation Army. You know you've done something good, but you can, you don't really see it. You don't feel it. But I love the the feeling of working with the locals. You know, eating with them, seeing them laugh, building the house with them. So that once I got into college, I was thinking about okay, that was amazing. I'd like to do that, or would I like to get into you know finance and the world of business and everything? So the uh, the habitat experience ended up winning out, and I did the Peace Corps, and now I'm kind of trying to combine those passions with with Kateka. In our closing moments, give us a sense of the future for Kateka. I know on your website you say you want to be in 76 countries. How close are you to that goal, and what is the future for the site? Well, for now, um, our goal for this year is to have 12 countries by the end of the year up on Kateka. So we'd like to go 
fairly quickly, but we don't want to um, grow for in our own way unsustainably. Right? We want to make sure that all of our values are sustained in terms of the community-based aspect of the travel and also that we just don't overreach. But um, we've already started with going to Southeast Asia. I'm going to be going to South America soon and then going around and adding more destinations. And we feel like because of that Peace Corps network, we can grow pretty efficiently and pretty quickly without compromising those ideals because we can just connect with Peace Corps volunteers once we get to the country. Well, you're, you're doing uh, really good work, Jack, and uh, we're really pleased that we, uh, we met you, and we did, and, and, and learned of your story, and uh, look forward to uh, hearing from you as you continue to grow uh, in future. And, and um, just as an aside, uh, Katega is actually spelled with an E, and uh, we will have a uh, K-E-T-E-K-A dot com, and we'll have a link to uh, Katega on our website. Jack Fischel is one of the founders of Katega.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on your favorite social network. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best. The Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.